You know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a story that we believe in. It is, in fact, a reality that we are living in. And therefore, for followers of Christ at least, it defines every aspect of who we are and how we live our lives every day. Well, think about it this way. What if your best friend or maybe your spouse even passed away and was buried and you had the funeral and for three days they were in the ground, but then when you went to visit their gravesite to pay your respects, you found the burial site to be dug up and the coffin empty. Think of the utter despair, the hurt, the confusion that you would feel. But then while you're walking back home, devastated by what you've found, an empty grave, your spouse walks up beside you, more alive than ever. I'm telling you without question or exception, that event would define every single day of the rest of your life. You would never not talk about it. You would never pretend it didn't happen. You would never try to distance yourself from the reality of that day. In fact, it wouldn't even matter to you that it made some other people uncomfortable every time you talked about it. In fact, you wouldn't care one bit what anyone else ever thought about the fact that you believed it to be true because you would know that it was the truth. And that's all that would matter to you. That your spouse, that your best friend was alive. Right? That, that would be a truth that you could not ignore. Now look, when it comes to Jesus Christ, the resurrection is a truth you cannot ignore. Okay, the holiday is not about a story that we believe in. It is about a reality that we are living in. All of the singing, all of the celebration, all of the festivities going on all around the world today only have meaning because Jesus Christ is alive. Otherwise, we're simply celebrating an historical figure, right? A really good man who had some great ideas and some profound thoughts about humanity and culture, but nothing more. Just like St. Patrick's Day or President's Day, where we recognize virtuous people from our past by holding a big celebration of remembrance for someone long dead and gone. You see, if Jesus isn't alive today, then this day would be just like one of those other days. But today is not like those other days. Today is different because the one we recognize, Jesus the Christ, is anything but dead and gone. He is, in fact, alive and well. He is risen. And this happens to be a fact that we cannot attribute to any other great figure in history. All of the other religious leaders in our past, all of the other political leaders and social reformers and great innovators and humanitarians, the one common truth that they all share is the fact that they all died and stayed dead. That's what makes the Christian faith unique from all other religions. The reality that the one we follow not only died, but he rose from death. He walked out of his tomb and he's very much alive today. Look, if that's not true, 
If that is in fact not true, then what we believe as Christians actually means nothing. But if it is true, then what we believe as Christians means everything. Which is why this day is different from every other holiday and observance because this is the one and only day that we recognize in history when a man who claimed to be the Son of God, a man who claimed to have the answers, a man who claimed to be divine like so many others have before him and since. This is the only day when a man who made those claims actually proved it. He proved it by rising from the dead, conquering death and the grave. Resurrection Day. This is the day that our hero, our savior, our king defeated death. And not just for himself, but for all of us who choose to accept the life that he offers us. This is a truth that we cannot ignore. This is a truth that should, in fact, define every single day of the rest of our lives. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So why are so many professing Christians moderately committed to Christ? Right? Listen, our kids are having an egg hunt, probably as I speak. That's great. But make no mistake, this day is not about a fuzzy rabbit or chocolate eggs. It's about a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fact that He's alive, and what that now means to all of humanity. It's not a bedtime story that we believe in. It is a reality that we're now living in. It's a truth we cannot ignore. The fact that the only begotten Son of God came to this earth to save humanity from the wrath of God by dying a horrific death on the cross, making atonement for sins that we could not atone for ourselves, and then rising up from the dead, thereby gaining power over death itself, and then offering that eternal life to every one of us. And you understand all of that was by God's design, okay? When mankind first sinned, God wasn't scrambling around in the heavens trying to come up with a new plan for us. No, long before mankind ever existed, God made a provision for our salvation knowing that we would need it, which means Jesus knew what he had to do. He knew who he was. He knew the outcome of his life and his death and resurrection long before he experienced any of those. Because it was a truth fixed in eternity past. A truth that he could not ignore, which means it is also a truth that we cannot ignore because of the consequences of exactly who Jesus is and exactly what he did for us. So why do we not talk about that? to every single person we meet every day. Why do we sometimes act like it didn't happen? Right, when troubles come in our lives. Why do we distance ourselves from the gospel when it makes people uncomfortable to talk about? Why do we care one bit what anybody else thinks about us when we know it to be true? You see, if you're a follower of Christ, we cannot ignore the resurrection and all of the implications that come with it. Jesus couldn't ignore it, and neither can we. 
And so last week, Pastor Chris walked you through the first 36 verses of the gospel according to John chapter 12. And that entire collection of verses and the rest of the chapter actually is rife with statements by Jesus himself proving that he knew exactly what he was here to do. He could not ignore his purpose, nor did he ever try to. And the result was the fulfillment of everything that God had planned for all of eternity concerning Jesus. The sacrifice that had been foreshadowed by Abraham and Isaac 1,800 years earlier in Genesis 22. His betrayal that had been prophesied 1,000 years earlier in Psalm 41. His crucifixion that was prophesied 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53. And his resurrection that was foretold over a 1,000 years earlier in Psalm 22. Everything that defined his life and death and resurrection then defines our lives today. Our very existence, who we are and why we happen to be here at this moment in history. It is a truth that we cannot ignore. So we're going to pick the story back up then, this time at John 18, as Jesus and his disciples made their way by foot from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria and Bethpage and Bethany. And they've shared their final meal together. And now they're about to cross the Kidron Valley from the great city itself. As so many were flocking to Jerusalem to share that Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples are actually retreating from the city to the garden at Gethsemane. So let's read John 18. We'll begin with the first two verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples leave the city to head out to the garden where they would often meet to rest and pray. And if we pay attention to the detail given by John, even this short journey together has so much prophetic significance and it demonstrates beautifully the intention of Jesus to fulfill his calling, knowing well and good the cost to him personally. All right, John says they crossed the brook Kidron. If you read that in the ancient Greek, the brook Kidron is described as a kemeros. In the Arabic, it's called a wadi. It's a storm runlet, a, a dry gulch that only had water in it during the rainy seasons. Here we would call that a dry creek bed, right? That acted as a, a storm runoff through the Kidron Valley. And Jesus and his disciples had to cross uh, that Kidron, that brook, right, to get over into the garden where they were heading. Now here's where it gets interesting. This was the afternoon before the Passover. This is when the priests would sacrifice the lambs on the altar of the temple. And the historical records that we have from Jesus' day tell us that as many as 250,000 lambs were slain by hundreds of priests and so they had these big drains at the altar areas that would carry the massive quantities of blood from a quarter of a million lambs along with the water used for ritual cleansings down from the city to the otherwise dry brook of Kidron. In fact, the word Kidron itself means black brook or gloomy brook because of its crimson stained banks from the blood that flooded it every single year at Passover. 
So picture this. As Jesus and his disciples made their way to the garden with his death on a cross, his crucifixion being now imminent, they had to first cross the brook Kidron, which was flowing to its banks with blood and water. And of course, in John 19.34, at Jesus' crucifixion, John says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. The, the prophetic overtones here are astounding, and that was certainly not lost on Jesus. Again, if you, if you read back through chapter 12 that Pastor Chris went through last week, and if you just read the red letters... Just read what Jesus said in that one chapter. It becomes undeniably clear that he knew exactly what was coming. And the truth is, I cannot imagine what he must have been thinking and feeling as he crossed over that brook that carried the blood and water from those sacrificial lambs through the valley, knowing where God's plan for him was about to lead him. You see, Jesus could not ignore what was coming, Jesus could not ignore the necessity of his death. And neither can we. And yet so many believers try to do just that. We, why? Because it's much easier to talk about the other parts of the gospel that don't require as much from us. Right? The love of Christ is easy to talk about. The fact that he ate with sinners... That's easy to talk about. The fact that he, he fed hungry people, that's easy for us to talk about his, his willingness and desire to accept the outcasts of society. That's easy to talk about. We, we love to talk about all of those aspects of the gospel, as we should, by the way. But the truth is, those are the parts of the gospel that are easy to talk about because they're popular themes in our culture. But when you start talking about the fact that Jesus was mercilessly and brutally tortured, mocked, beaten, crucified to make atonement for our sins, it makes people who are still living in their sin very uncomfortable. And we don't like to make people uncomfortable, so we shy away from talking about those more difficult parts of the gospel. But listen, we cannot ignore those parts. In Matthew's account of Jesus' trial and execution, he says, chapter 27, verse 26, that Jesus was scourged before being crucified. Roman flogging or scourging was a horrifically cruel punishment where those condemned were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal which would tear through the skin and tissue often exposing the bones and at times even the intestines. In fact, in many cases, flogging itself was fatal. And in this case, the Romans made certain to scourge Jesus nearly to death so that he would not remain alive on the cross after sundown because Jewish custom dictated that crucified bodies had to be taken down before evening, especially before the Sabbath, which began at sundown on Friday. And yet, as horrible as it is to have to contemplate all that he went through for us, every single step of that process was a fulfillment of what had been prophesied about him in various scriptures throughout the Old and New Testaments leading up to these events. 
This is what he came to do for you and for me. In fact, if you keep reading in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, he goes on to describe how the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus down and put a scarlet robe on his body and pressed a crown of thorns into his scalp. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew 27, 29 through 31. Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at this point in history were actually well known for playing cruel games with the condemned prisoners. They would often uh, dress them up in wild costumes. They even had a huge game board. And they would use the prisoners as game pieces and they would play these sadistic games to degrade and punish them, uh, those who were condemned to die. And all the while, Jesus, who at any moment could have commanded legions of angels to come and snuff the life out of every one of those who opposed him, instead he allowed them freely to torture him, ruthlessly. Why? because he knew that he could not skip over that part of what he'd come to do for us. And neither can we. We cannot ignore the hard truth about his brutal death that happened because of the willful sin in our own lives. Look, if, if people do not understand the wages of their sin, they will never understand their need for a Savior. You cannot lead people into a true understanding of the gospel by only talking about the love of Jesus for this world. To be sure, that's a good place to start. But at some point, we must confront the reality of his horrific death because of our sin. It's a truth we cannot afford to ignore. Let's keep reading. John 18, verses 3 through 9. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So Judas gathers a band of soldiers. These were Roman soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and Pharisees as well. In the original Greek language, the band of soldiers is described as a spira. That was a Roman cohort, which was a thousand men. Now, in practice, we're told the Roman cohort typically comprised between six and seven hundred soldiers. But then when you add in the temple police, it is estimated that there were about a thousand men with lanterns and torches and weapons sent out to capture one man. 
Now hearing this story as a kid growing up, I always pictured about 15 or 20 soldiers with Judas coming to arrest Jesus. Can you imagine the sight and the sound of this mass of soldiers with torches and lanterns, the metal of their swords and their armor clanging together as they approached the garden that evening a thousand strong. It must have been a terrifying sight. And part of the reason they sent so many after Jesus, by the way, is because they weren't just concerned about Jesus and his immediate disciples. At, at this point, he'd become very popular among the masses. And so there was a fear of an uprising upon his arrest. So sending out a thousand soldiers would much better prepare the authorities for any potential mob violence, which was always a concern uh, for the Romans during the Passover, when according to the first century scholar Flavius Josephus, over 2,700,000 people crowded into that one city. And so a thousand battle-hardened soldiers come seeking to arrest Jesus, and Jesus steps forward and asks them, Whom do you seek? And when they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth, he responds with the very same words given to Moses by God in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asked the Lord who he should tell the Israelites had sent him. In the ancient Greek, it's the word ego emi, which literally means I am or I am who I am. And the moment Jesus speaks those words revealing his true divine identity, a thousand battle-hardened soldiers with their lanterns and torches and weapons and armor fall back onto the ground. What a sight that must have been. Could you even imagine it? it? It's no wonder that in just a few moments, Peter has the courage to lunge forward into that horde of soldiers and cut the ear off of one of the men. Again, as a kid, I used to wonder how Peter could be so courageous in the face of all these soldiers when just moments later in the face of a servant girl, he denies even knowing Jesus three times out of fear for his life. That never made any sense to me, but it makes perfect sense now when you understand what was actually happening here. You see, all throughout Scripture, the book of Ezekiel, uh, the book of Daniel, the Acts of the Apostles, the Revelation, when God reveals Himself to people, they fall over. Revelation 1.17, describing the divine revelation of Christ to John on the island of Patmos. John writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, when Jesus reveals himself to these soldiers, they collapse to the ground. And if Jesus, simply speaking his own name, can knock a thousand hardened soldiers onto their backs, Peter must have felt invincible at that moment. And what a moment it was. You see, Jesus wasn't afraid of the thousand soldiers. Jesus wasn't afraid of their swords or their torches or their armor. Jesus wasn't afraid of anything that men could ever do to him because he knew exactly who he was. Jesus could not ignore the reality of his true identity. Neither can we. And yet again, it's easy for us to tell other people about his likable qualities, about his popular character traits, even about his stand against the broken religious system of the day. We love that. But listen, Jesus isn't just a likable rebel 
who bucked the system. No, he also said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 9. The Apostle Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The Apostle Paul said there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6 Look, the New Testament writers cite messianic prophecies from the Old Testament more than 130 times. The Old Testament contains 300 prophetic passages that describe who the Messiah is and what he is going to do for us. What do you think the chances are of those prophecies all being fulfilled in one person? Come on. I mean, the truth is the chances are so staggeringly remote that the possibility of it being mere coincidence is a complete joke. Jesus alone is the Messiah. He's the one and only Son of God. He's the one way to the Father. The only truth, the only light, the only salvation, the only one who is able to conquer death and the grave. He's the only one who can give us new life. He's the only one who could atone for our sins and he's the only one worthy of our devotion and our worship. Look, it's good and right to tell people about the true qualities of Jesus, but at the same time we cannot ignore the true identity of Jesus because we're worried about sounding intolerant of other beliefs or religions. Recently I made a new friend, a Muslim man who asked me to meet with him once a week to help him with some issues he was dealing with in his professional and personal life. I've only known him for a few months and had just begun meeting with him regularly. And yet God gave me a, a, a deep love and concern for this man almost immediately after getting to know him. And when we met last week, about seven days ago, uh, maybe a little more, he asked me a question about my faith, to which I replied, look, my friend, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what I believe means everything. But if he's not who he says he is, then what I believe actually means nothing. So he probed a little further. And so I laid bare the gospel. My own desperate need for Christ in my life or I wouldn't make it through my own struggles or survive the effects of my own sin. And being the kind and gracious man that he is, he thanked me at the end of our meeting that night and told me he was looking forward to our next one. Five days ago, he died. We dare not claim to love Jesus if we're not willing to tell people who he really is. Because any moment could be their last on this earth. 
telling people the truth about who Jesus is is a truth we cannot afford to ignore. Let's keep reading. We're going to skip down now to chapter 19, halfway through verse 16, and we'll read through verse 19, which is after the torture and trial of Jesus as the soldiers now take him out to be crucified. So chapter 19, 16 through 19. So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now skip down to verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So even while dying an excruciating death on a cross, Jesus was still doing and saying things in order to fill, fulfill scripture about him. And in particular, Jesus references Psalm 22. Again, when his, in his final dying moments, he expresses his thirst because, again, he understood everything that was written about the coming Messiah was written about him. Right? He could not ignore the necessity of his death. He, he could not ignore the reality of his true identity. And Jesus could not ignore the fulfillment of his destiny. Which, by the way, was ultimately not death on a cross. <clears throat> no, the ultimate fulfillment of his destiny was the fact that he would rise from the dead eternally victorious over death in the grave. And he knew that. As he was hanging there on that cross, he already knew that. In fact, we have great evidence in Matthew's account of this same event that Jesus knew he was about to conquer death before he ever died. Matthew describes the scene in chapter 27 just before Jesus gasps his last breath. He cries out in Hebrew, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. It's Hebrew for my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? It's in Matthew 27, 46. I have to be honest with you. After everything that Jesus did, understanding who he was and the fact that he was not only going to die for mankind, but he understood exactly why. I'm just being perfectly honest with you. I always thought it a bit anticlimactic that the Son of God, with all of His wisdom and understanding, not just in general, but in this very situation, knowing exactly why He was there and what He was accomplishing by being there, it always felt like a bit of a letdown to me that He would spend His final breath questioning the Father. You know, when you think about people being executed and they're given a chance to offer their final words, at least uh, from those who are in their right minds, you expect their deepest, innermost thoughts. You expect them to muster up the most profound and meaningful statement that they can give in one sentence. And in fact, uh, it's interesting to read some of those statements that have been made by those who are about to be executed throughout the years because you know they've had a long time to think about it, some of them, and indeed, some of those final words are very compelling, uh, very thought-provoking, some quite profound. And so, to be honest, I guess I always expected more of that 
from Jesus, who had plenty of time to think about what he would say in that one moment, right? He knew why he was there, and yet what I would read in Matthew always seemed more of a really sad expression of confused bewilderment. And so for most of my life in church, I heard it explained that because Jesus was shouldering the sin of the world, that in some way in that moment he had to be cut off from fellowship with the Father, and he couldn't fathom that, so he questioned the Father in that final moment of his life on earth. And again, uh, that always left me with, with a bit of a sense of defeat. Even though I knew Jesus rose from the dead later and conquered sin and death, that, that moment of triumph over the grave, as Jesus' last gasp, it always felt like a bit of a defeat to me as he questions the Father's absence in that moment. And that's what I believed for most of my life. The truth is, there is immensely more to what was happening in that moment than Jesus simply being bewildered by the Father turning away from sin. In fact, it's not at all what I thought or what I was taught, which at best is an incomplete picture and quite possibly a total misunderstanding of that passage to begin with. You see, in the first century, the scripture that people had and knew was, of course, Old Testament scripture. And some of the most commonly quoted and well-known passages of Scripture at that time were the Psalms, which of course are songs, right? The word psalm means hymn. Th these were songs that were sung and taught and quoted by God's people over and over and over again until it was just in them. They knew them by heart. And if you think about it, if you think about a really uh, famous song in our lifetime, a song that everyone would know really well, you can simply hear just the first line of that song and nothing else, and immediately you know what that song is, and you know what that song is about. You know the message of that song, and you know how it makes you feel, all just by hearing the very first line of that song, because it's in you. You know it. Right? It's like the old show, Name That Tune. Is anybody old enough to remember that? Where they would play the first line of a song and the person listening would have to guess the name of the song. And of course, the more well-known the song, the easier it was to name the song. That's how music works in general. That's how songs work. The more you hear them, right, the more they stay with you to the point that just hearing that very first line can instantly take you right there. You can re recall the entire piece from hearing the first line. If you hear someone sing, Oh, say, can you see? Right? Just by hearing that line of the song, you know what song it is. And you know what that song is about. It stirs something inside of you. The reason that matters is because Psalm 22 is one of those songs. It's one of the songs that was taught in Jesus' day over and over and over again until everyone knew that song. It's a well-known song. Starts out as a great lament about suffering, but it happens to end in great victory over one's enemies. In fact, Psalm 22 was known as a song of victory even in the worst of circumstances when it seems the entire world is crashing around against you and all is lost. Psalm 22 was the ultimate cry of victory over over the enemy. And again, this song of victory was taught over and over and over and over again. Well known at the time that Jesus was hanging there on that cross. In fact, we've already seen John point out 
that Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 22:15 in his great thirst just before dying. And so if you would please put the beginning of Psalm 22 up on the screens behind me so you can read the first line. The first line of that very famous song says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you getting the picture? Jesus wasn't expressing some kind of bewilderment as he was dying on the cross. Not at all. No, as he felt his life slipping away. With one final breath in his lungs, he cries out the first line of one of the greatest songs about victory over our enemy that had ever been written. Jesus was quoting a very familiar line to a very familiar song. He was making a statement to the world in that moment, both to those there that day witnessing his death and everyone after who would ever read Matthew's account of the crucifixion that in that moment in the worst circumstances that anyone could ever fathom having to face Jesus was in fact claiming victory for all who would ever call upon his name forever and then seconds later the victory was won wow Wow, can you feel the gravity of the difference in that passage in Matthew now? From what seemed to be a sad statement of defeat to what is actually the greatest victory cry in the history of humankind. Jesus knew what he'd come to do. He knew who he was and he understood where his destiny would lead him. He, he could not ignore it. So he put an exclamation point on his coming resurrection by claiming victory over death before he ever even died on the cross. Okay, look, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all testify in their gospel accounts that when Jesus' followers went to visit his tomb, he was not there. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, an angel was there to greet them. Matthew's account records the angel saying, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Matthew 28, 5 and 6. Listen, if that is true, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then why are we not constantly talking about it to everyone? That one event that he knew was coming, that we now know has come, should define every single day of the rest of our lives. We should never not talk about it. We should never pretend it didn't happen. We should never try to distance ourselves from the reality of that moment. It should matter to us more than anything else. And it shouldn't matter to us that it makes some people uncomfortable when we talk about it. In fact, we shouldn't care one bit what anyone thinks about the fact that we believe his resurrection to be true because we know it is true. It is a truth that we cannot ignore. Jesus is alive. Which means it should change our lives. Actually, noticeably, in very real, everyday kind of ways, our lives should be different just like it was for those original disciples who, by the way, were running scared, hiding out from the authorities when Jesus was killed. And yet the very same men, every one of them, radically devoted every day of the rest of their lives to boldly proclaiming what they knew to be true because they'd witnessed it firsthand after Jesus rose from the dead.
You could see maybe one or two of them losing their minds if Jesus had not actually risen from the grave and maybe deciding to start a new religion based on a lie. But all of them? Chuck Colson, many of you are familiar with that name. He's now passed away. He served as a special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973, and he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. As many of you know, he gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal, and ultimately he pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice for his part in that big scandal, and he served seven months in federal prison. He later became an outspoken Christian in what was a radical life change and he led the founding of several ministries including Prison Fellowship and then Prison Fellowship International where he taught and trained people how to focus on a Christian worldview in every single aspect of their daily lives. He also went on to author more than 30 books uh, and the ones that I've read are incredible. Now Colson was a man who knew what it meant to be radically transformed by the truth of the gospel. This is what he had to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Yeah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a story that we believe in. It is a reality that we are living in. And it should therefore define and radically transform every aspect of who we are and how we live our lives, just like it did for those 12 men in the Bible who followed him then, just like it did for Chuck Colson, whose life was undeniably changed after he came to know Christ, and just like it should for you and me today. People who have a relationship with, uh, who the people we have relationships with, they should never have to wonder what we believe about Jesus. Truth is, it should be obvious in everything that we say and do because it's not just a belief. It is our reality. And if the Spirit of the living God is living inside of us, our lives cannot be the same as they once were. How could we ever go back? How could we ever pretend that the resurrected Christ is not resurrected? How could we live that way? It would be like those 12 disciples seeing him and touching him and talking with him and eating with him. But then when they were around other people pretending that none of it was true. It would be like us seeing our best friend or our spouse alive and well after they've been dead for three days and then speaking with them and touching them and eating with them and living with them. But then when other people were around pretending that none of it really happened. Uh, no, that would be unimaginable. Because this would be our new reality. Right. One that we could not ignore. Okay, look, Jesus Christ is alive. 
He is risen. It's not something we believe in. It's a reality that we are living in. And the world needs to hear it and see it and touch it and live with that reality when they hear and see and touch and live among us, his disciples today. So don't avoid talking about it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Don't distance yourself from it because it is the truth and the world needs to know it. Which means we cannot afford to ignore it. Let's pray.